Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm Fiona Sutherland, dietitian from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I interview dietitians from all over the world who are experts in health at every size, the non-diet approach and mindfulness-based practice. These are a collection of interviews by a dietitian for dietitians and nutritionists so that we can build a strong community of wonderful professionals who share an inclusive vision of well-being for everybody in everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello and welcome back to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I am really excited to be sitting here today with fellow Aussie dietitian Shane Jeffrey, who is an eating disorder specialist based in Brisbane. Shane and I are sitting here in the most incredible surroundings in a place called Noosa, which is a little town just uh, a couple of hours north of Brisbane. It is arguably one of the most spectacular places in Australia. And we're here for the Australia and New Zealand Academy of Eating Disorders Autumn Series, which is really like a mini conference where uh, eating disorder professionals from all over Australia come and um, enjoy workshops and and professional development. And um, uh, yeah, let's not kid ourselves. We're, we're here for the networking and the drinks, really. Uh, so uh, I want to introduce you to Shane and then um, and I'll get him to tell you a little bit about himself and about his career. So just to start us off, tell us tell us a little bit about um, your career path. Sure. Thanks, Pia. Yeah, lovely to be up here in Noosa. My, um, my career path is interesting in that I, I was close not to becoming a dietitian. So when we got to the end of our uh, uni degree, I failed. Um, oh, and, yeah, I, I, um, I failed my last placement, so I had to do an extra clinical um, load of two weeks and um, that ended up happening at Gold Coast Hospital. So I went down there, did my extra two weeks and it was what was interesting, I went from being the, the failure of the class to being the first one who got the job. So so I did my I did my two week two week placement and um, and then I got offered a locum um, pretty well straight away, which was nice. And at the time there were two dietitians, the senior dietitian was doing ICU and other things. And as the you know new boy on the job sort of thing, I had the regular weight management side of it. I had some some renal based stuff, uh, which I was interested in because I've always had an interest in maths, and um, found renal quite mathematical. And so I was doing that for uh, probably two and a half years or so. And um, yeah, I, I remember this one day I went down to the hemodialysis ward and I was talking to a patient, and I walked away thinking, "What am I doing here?" You know, I was really disillusioned. And then I started thinking about it and with with renal, as you guys all know, it's 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 when when I was doing it back then, it was quite mathematical. So I'd interview these people, I'd get their diet history, I'd then calculate the millimoles potassium and sodium, I'd then go to the book and say, Okay, well this is how much you need to have based on where you're at at the moment. Then I would work out how many serves of fruit they could have and how many serves of bread they could have, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Put it all in a plan with them, give them a ready reckoner. Cross my fingers that I can go home and follow it all. Oh God, the red reckoner! You're giving me a nightmare. Flashbacks. The red reckoner. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Yeah. Lists and lists of fruit. Yes. You know, um, and yeah, it was interesting because I, I went away thinking, you know, I've just spent so much time with this person, mm. and we're talking about millimoles of potassium, 
yet there is error in every step of the way. You know, first of all, I'm relying on a accurate recall of her intake. I'm relying on my um, ability to accurately assess that potassium intake mm. based on her portion sizes. Mm. I, I'm then assuming that all cherries and all tomatoes are the same size. <laughs> <laughs> Depends which state you live in. That's right. <laughs> and then, and then I've got to, you know, hope that she goes home or he goes home and eats it all. Yeah. And I thought this is this is silly. And so, so I really found myself questioning the method mm. that I've been trained in. And and after that, I become much more general in my recommendations um, and much more selective in terms of who I'd spend time with. Mm. So I'd have a referral to go and see somebody on the cardiology ward and one of the first questions I'd ask them is I'd say, I'm the dietician, you died, your doctor's given me a referral, would you mind having a chat? And if they said no, I'd offer them some information and walk away mm. because I felt if they're not ready to receive that information, I'm going to go and find other people who are. Mm-hmm. And so... I sort of adopted that. It was around that same time that I, I saw my first eating disorder patient mm. and it was like a, a blessing in disguise because I was getting disillusioned with traditional dietetics and the model I'd been trained. And when I first started seeing her, um, we were working on weight restoration, young anorexia patient, uh, female on a mental health ward, and I went over and I started implementing just general based principles and I started thinking to get her to implement this meal plan we're going to have to look at behavioral stuff you know I can't just give her the plan and hope that she's going to follow it and and so the I I guess her and I really credit her with my career really because I never saw her who knows I don't think I would be here but it's um yeah that that really stimulated my interest in, in in the behavioral side of things and unfortunately, I think that our dietitians in their training still don't get that. Mm. You know, we, we, we still seem to work on this premise that if we give people knowledge, knowledge equals behaviour change mm. and they'll go away and do that and, you know, that tends not to be the case. I think our roles as dietitians is, is much more behavioural and in terms of trying to help people understand how they can go about making changes rather than just mm. the, the what's. So... Um, so, yes, I went through that process, went to UK, um, came back to Australia after two years, was going to go back to the eating disorder clinic I was working at at the time on the Gold Coast. They'd been taken over by another service and they um, weren't doing eating disorder patients anymore. And there were no eating disorder jobs in Brisbane at the time. So I mm-hmm. thought, well, fuck at this, I'm going to go and study law. So I went and studied law, studied accounting. Oh, I did not know that about you. So I've known you for well over 15 years. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah so okay, I did I, I did that for 18 months. Oh, okay. And then um, then another eating disorder job came up in Brisbane at the Bronte Foundation with oh, Jan, yes. and that's where yes. I met you. That's where I met you, yes. That's where yes. I met you. And then, um, and then since then I've been just in eating disorders full-time really. And, mm. yeah, it's um, – it's a lovely space to be, you know. I think I feel blessed that we get to work with some lovely people in terms of the professionals we work with. But you know, the, the people we work with are just brilliant. You know, they're gorgeous, lovely. Um, they're incredible humans, really. They're incredible. They're just fantastic, you know. And, and I often think that, you know, where have and often get asked the question, you know, from from new graduates, you know, where can I get training in eating disorders and that sort of thing. Mm sort of point them in some few directions, but I always say, you know, my biggest learning 
experience has been through the patients and the families we work with. And, um, and I think that's just a lovely dynamic to, to go into each day, um, you know, that you're learning from them. So, so yeah, and I, I don't think that I'd really, well, as evidence when I studied law and accounting, if I wasn't doing eating disorders and, and you know, the non-dieting approach to weight management, I, um, I wouldn't be a dietitian. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really interesting how, you know, our paths are never linear, are they? They're never linear. It never just takes one direction. And um, so so what, so what over the years that you've been in eating disorders, you've been very busy, you've raised a young family, you've got three beautiful children, um, and you've been in some different kind of work sectors. So tell us a little bit about what's, you know, how things have, have progressed from that very first service that you worked in. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the The first service I worked in was very much a a medical model, yeah. a behavioural model. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you don't gain weight, then we're taking these books away, we're taking this mm-hmm. away, we're doing this. If you gain weight, we'll give them back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I always felt uncomfortable with that because I think we're taking things away from a person who is in many ways disempowered to do the things that we're asking them to do. Mm-hmm. Um and then when I worked, there was a clinic I worked at at the Gold Coast, which is which is brilliant. And it comes back to the point I made earlier. It was run by a person who had previously had an eating disorder, and she just had a totally different way of seeing things. And that really opened up my eyes. Um, and so I again credit her with a lot of my early learnings. It was it was a really interesting clinic because it was a private inpatient clinic, and we took people with anorexia nervosa bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. And so it wouldn't be uncommon to sit down at the dining table with the eight to ten patients we had and you'd have one patient on one side of you weighing 32 kilos and the patient on the other side of you weighing 170. And so the, the dynamics of those tables were, were very interesting. Um, and so so that was more of a, a client-centred approach, which I really gelled with, and I think that really consolidated my interest in the area. Um and then after that, working with the Bronte Foundation, the the main difference I noted there was a, a big involvement of family. Yeah. Was that really at the beginning of um, um, uh, where families were actively included a, a lot more and the evolution of what we now know as FBT? Would, I mean, looking back now, would you say that was kind of the start of it? I, I, I think so. You know, I think... Um, you know, Jane Cullis who, and um, Belinda Dalton who established that um, that service were probably ahead of their time in that space, you know, in terms of in- engaging family and seeing the families being a, a valuable resource in the work that we do. Um, you know, we always used to say recovery happens at home yes. and irrespective of how good the content of the session is, unless things are able to be implemented at home, which requires family support often, mm-hmm. is that, you know, it um, it often doesn't move forward mm-hmm. at any great speed. So, so that that was probably around two thousand two, two thousand three, that um, we sort of started that happening. And I, I remember as a service in Brisbane, anyway, we used to get a lot of um, negativity from other professionals because we were involving family. And you know, you know the old saying, "Families are the cause of the problem," <laughs> and you know, you need to keep them at arm's distance and that sort of thing. So the um, yeah the, the inclusion of family has, has been a, a very big part of the, the process and then after that moving to the Royal Brisbane Hospital inpatient unit that's a big part of um, 
how that service has evolved, I guess, over the last 10 years as well. That, um, you know, we include family in decision making, we invite them into ward round once a week. Um, you know, we want them to be considered part of the treatment team. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Because the knowledge that they have about the different family members and in particular their, their young person or their young adult is critical. You know, no, nobody knows that person as well as they do. That's, so, yeah. that's right. And, and, you know, I often get confused when people ask me for my assessment report after I've seen a patient once. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like oh, <laughs> I've spent 40 minutes with this person. Yeah. I, I don't know I'm a good. lot. I'm good, but I'm not that good. <laughs> that's right. And, and you know, you, you talk to the parents for 10 minutes and they can give you a, a good understanding of this person's personality, the behaviours they're concerned about, all those things mm-hmm. that just sort of, you know, cut to the chase, gives you a different insight. And, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, like all parents, you know, we have our challenges and we don't get it right all the time. But I think that there's um, certainly a lot of resources there that we can utilise. And, and so that's been good. And I think the, the other thing that's really important, you know, that I would say looking back on my career is I was talking to someone about this the other day, is that even if I go back maybe six or seven years in the public sector that I work in and also in private practice, you know, I, I sort of identified as a bit of a weirdo. You know, you're the dietitian who likes eating disorders. I, you know, I don't don't send them to me. You know, is what people used to say. I, I used to go on leave, and it used to be a hard sell getting somebody to come in and cover my position because no one wanted to do it. What do you think it is about this field that makes people apprehensive? I think it's stereotypes. I think it's misunderstanding. Um, I think it's the unknown and, and also that it sort of sits in a mental health space and, you know, that that stigma I think is still definitely out there and, you know, breaking that down is, is one of the roles I think that we have is trying to help people understand that, you know, these are just lovely people who have, you know, fallen by whatever way into the path of developing an eating disorder through no real intention of their own, no real I want to have this, you know, and, and, you know, when, when, we, when I talk at the universities now, 10 years ago I'd lecture at the universities and no one would come up at the end of the class. Now you can guarantee you'll get five, six, seven, ten people, students coming up at the end of the class saying, how do I get into this field? Mm. And that's, awesome. a, that's a massive change, I think, that, you know, there's really stimulating interest. And I think that comes from the work you guys are doing at um, Body Positive Australia, the mindful dietitian, getting this... Mm. You know, this real um, questioning attitude around why why do we keep doing things the way we've been taught to do them? Yeah, well, I think it's, um, you know, when, when we are asking our clients to be curious and, and to question, um, you know, even their, the beliefs that they've held so close to them for so many years or, or the messages that are thrown at them by our culture, if we're asking them to pause and question and stay curious, and I think we owe them and we owe each other exactly that same thing which is why um why i find um, I, and i i know you're the same we gravitate towards other eating disorder dietitians you know we, we tend to be this quite close-knit bunch so from from your perspective what is it a, about us as a group that you think is similar it's a it's a, it's a really good uh question and you know i think that we we, cre- we 
question tradition. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, you know, you talk to Di- Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're rebels, you know. Maybe that's why I failed. <laughs> I, um, you know, the long hair and the earrings might have been a bit of a, you know, not, not the look of a dietitian, but, you know. Maybe, but I, but I, I think it is. I, I think it's, you know, it's the people who really start questioning their practice and the outcomes and trying to identify there's got to be a better way to do what we do. Um, and the other thing I, I think is is that, you know, people like yourself and other people that I, I find work in eating disorders, you know, particularly with dietitians, it is, there's a real sense of we're working with a human here. Yes, yes. You know, it's not a person with an eating disorder. It's not a person with anorexia. It's just a person yes. that we want to try and help support get to a better place. Yes. And I think that, you know, that I guess in, in some ways we all go in, into dietetics, you know, with the understanding that we want to help people. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I think there's, there's something, you know, different in some ways about being able to look beyond, you know, just the dietary prescription and the theory and that sort of thing and really being able to engage with the personal experience of these patients and people we're working with have. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, the, the other thing I noticed, apart from the um, being team rebel, really, um, because we, I mean, we've all gone through stages in our, as students and probably early in our career, where exactly what you said, we felt different. There was something different about us. And yet now there's a sense of, um, there's a sense of togetherness, isn't there? You know, there's a sense of, okay, I don't know all the answers, but I know a whole bunch of other people that don't know all the answers as well. So how about we don't know all the answers together? So it's, it's really interesting. We're kind of muddling through it together and there's some huge triumphs, isn't there? You know, so one, um, one triumph that I really want to highlight of yours is, um, your raves model. Um, so tell us a little bit about the background, how you kind of came up with it and then what it actually is. Um, yeah, raves is something that sort of has un- un- been underpinning my practice for, for many years and it, um, I guess it really came together when we had um, some psychologists who were doing CBTE and, you know, if, um, you know, many of your listeners will be aware that CBT doesn't necessarily require a regular referral to a dietitian. And, and so the psychologists were finding themselves stuck in terms of how to support people improving their relationship with food. And so I started having a look at what I was doing. How, how can we structure this in a very simple, generic way that people can just carry a, a, a go-to in their pocket sort of thing? And so I got thinking and just made a few notes and I thought, well, from my perspective, and at the time I'm largely working with people with anorexia nervosa and bulimia, and so I thought, well, from an anorexia point of view, if we've got to get two and a half, three thousand calories in, if we've got to help them restore weight, they need to eat six times a day. They need to be eating regularly. So that's your R. So your R is regularity. Regularity, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm guessing the next one is A. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Good, <laughs> good guess. Good guess, good guess, yeah. <laughs> the English language is simple sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, so A stands for adequacy. So I think, you know, eating regularly is only really going to be of benefit if there's adequate nutrition, adequate nutrition to help, you know, contain some of those binging episodes, those cravings to eat um, from a point of view of weight restoration with anorexia nervosa moving forward in terms of tissue building, that sort of thing. And and adequacy, we, we, we try and look at it from a couple of different angles. So the the first one is adequacy in terms of, 
getting food across the different food groups from that from that balance point of view. And when we look at across the food groups, we also include non-food groups um, in there as well because that's a, a food group in itself, isn't it really? Absolutely. Um, and then we also, so once those food groups are all in place, then we look at, okay, well, are the quantities reasonable? Mm-hmm. Um, from the point of view of um, are you getting enough protein, carbohydrate to support that tissue generation, to manage satiety, that sort of thing. Yeah. So the A, the A is uh, for, for adequacy as you identified. And then what I find interesting is regularity and adequacy uh, are key components to the framework, but they don't necessarily lead to improved quality of life. So... And I guess the way I highlight it to patients often is we get you eating regularly and we get you eating adequately in hospital. It does not support recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a part of that process. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the V, the E and the S are really around quality of life issues. Yeah, nice. And so the, the V really stands for variety. So somebody might be eating enough dairy products, they may be getting enough of them, but they're only eating, you know, natural yogurt. Yeah, or Whereas, plain milk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we, we try and encourage them to to broaden that understanding of what dairy products are, the safetiness that can be found in them, mm. the pleasure that can be found in them. Mm. And, you know, once we start engaging variety, we start engaging our taste buds, we start reconnecting with food a little bit differently, we start challenging rules and breaking them down. So variety, I, I think, is a really key point because it starts – providing the opportunity for that person to put more distance between the dietary rules they've been adhering to and following quite strictly and building in a bit of flexibility around that and, and getting evidence that these other foods are actually okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then what variety does, I think, is variety starts to open up the opportunity for people to eat socially, mm. which is the E. And eat. Socially. Eat socially. Oh, nice. Um, and oh, when, E is eat socially. Oh, so no, 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 no. The e, the e is just eat socially. Eat socially. <laughs> okay, one word. Yeah, yeah. The S is something else. <laughs> and, 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 and taking a, uh, a leaf out of your work, we've, we've more recently developed that to go eat socially and mindfully. Oh, nice. So, you know, That's we want great. people to, to connect with the world around them. Yes. You know, eating socially is such an important part of living these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and it provides the opportunity for those people with an eating disorder to get evidence that people do want to spend time with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I am a likeable person. Mm-hmm. It provides competition for the eating disorder noise. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very important dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, eating socially and mindfully for the E. And, and S sort of wraps it all up and really stands for spontaneity. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, be, being flexible, being able to think, I, I want some potato chips, I'm going to have some potato chips. Mm. You know, I want this. It's not afternoon tea time, but this is what I want to have right now. And it, it ties it up, I think, because it, it, it underpins the flexible approach that we want people to, to have. Mm. And so my understanding is in, in applying that RAVES model, and, and the psychologists loved it, I bet they did. I bet they did, yeah. Yeah, they they, they found it really helpful. And, and, you know, what was something that, you know, I guess was really developed for a tool for them has been something that, you know, lots of people find helpful now, you know, whether it be psychologists, dietitians, um, non-government organisations, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so we're um, we're still looking at how we can maybe tweak it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And and what we're thinking now is trying to build in some, 
behavioural approaches to sit on the other side. So what I've outlined there is the food-associated properties of rays. And then on the other side, we're, we're having a look at how we can develop some behavioural type things. So R for resilience, B for vulnerability, those types of things, and trying to identify that to, to work on these processes of raves from a food point of view, we've got to be looking at these behavioural things as well because variety will introduce vulnerability. Um, and for that model to be sustainable, we need to build resilience against this diet culture that we live in. Absolutely. I wonder if we could come up with a few other words. Does it have to be R-A-V-E-S again? No, no, no. no, no, no. All right. Um, what about either, either, depending on which fits, is like B for brave or C for courage maybe? Yes, yes. That could be what else? Um, I'll give it some thought. Yeah. yeah T, T for trust? T for trust. Because, it, I mean, trust is, is – is one of the um, is one of the most important parts of recovery, isn't it? Because it's not only it's not only trust in your environment and trust in other people. Having that sense of trust for yourself is really it's a critical part of it, isn't it? That being able to trust your own food decisions um, and trust your body. Yes, yeah. I think trusting your body is a, a really big one, and you know one of the things I often talk to people about coming back to the issue of trust is that. You know, one of people will often come and I had a patient yesterday who was um, who came to me to lose weight and we got talking about what she wanted to go away with that session with and she wanted a meal plan. And so we started talking about why she thought that might be helpful if it's different to what she'd done before. And I asked if we could just run through a, a different approach and so we looked at that. And um, one of the things I said to her is my understanding, and, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is you probably don't need me as a dietitian to tell you what to eat. You know, you've got people around you who you probably feed, you're married, you feed your children, you feed your husband, you give them carbohydrates, you give them a range of foods and you're comfortable with how that will impact on their health and their weight and that sort of thing. So, you know, my understanding is you've probably got two thought processes around food, one that you apply to other people and one that you apply to yourself. And there's a big disconnect there. And I said that, you know, if if we achieve nothing else out of the work we do together, if we can get you to a place where you're nourishing yourself, taking care of yourself in the way you take care for the people you care about, you'll do pretty well. Mm-hmm. And that applies from a food point of view and also a self-talk point of view. You know, if you eat a piece of cake, what happens? She goes, oh, you know, you stupid bitch, what you eat that for? And everybody go and exercise. Yeah. And so if your partner eats a piece of cake, is that how you talk to him? No, <laughs> you know, I'm straight up answers. So, you know, I, I think the, the the goal is people, from a trust point of view, trying to trust what they impart on other people yes. works for them. You know, in the language and the food choices, the portioning and that sort of thing. And you know, so as a dietitian, I, I try coming back to the renal thing. I've gone full circle. I, I try and steer clear of prescriptive detail and let the person have space to trust their own decision and explore that themselves and get the evidence that, you know, my body does work like my partner's. It does work like other people's. And if I can provide myself with the opportunity to trust my decision-making and trust how my body works in response to that, that this big weight just gets lifted off myself. And for those people who are supported and able to take that risk, 
I think that's when they start finding happiness that they're seeking. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, it's really interesting to hear you talk about, you know, when they are provided with opportunities. And I think um, that's a really critical aspect of it, isn't it? You know, um, so as dietitians, we can provide that sense of um, containment for people as they step away from like the, the rigidity or the um, heavy self-criticism or to to find another way of, of, of connecting with their intuition, their their innate ability to feed themselves really, like you say, as they do other people. And there's so many similarities, isn't there, between, um, you know, say a family-based therapy model where you're asking parents to fuel their ch- child really and then the adults we work with and sometimes, um, you know, well into middle age or even older adults and um, asking them to trust to trust their food decisions and sometimes it's really digging deep isn't it oh yes yeah definitely it's a really good point and you know the the process is is an interesting one because if, if people have that opportunity and they mm-hmm. feel supported and they've they can assume the risk because i think yes, with opportunity yes. comes risk you know there's an opportunity to improve your relationship but the risk is well shit i'm going to gain weight if i start eating carbs mm-hmm. and if we can provide a, an environment where they feel enabled to assume that risk and explore it, mm-hmm. I think that's where the opportunity is created because mm-hmm. if they can assume that risk, then the next step following on from that is they'll hopefully go and try and action something a little bit differently, which uh, which is really where the opportunity lies. You know, you want them to be doing things differently. And, and, and part of that is, 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 you know, giving time to think about it first. You know, mm-hmm. people aren't. Sure. straight up ready for it and, and, and you know I think we need to give people that that opportunity and the other thing I think that's important as well is that as as dietitians we don't have a an overwhelming investment in what people do what they go away from our sessions and actually implement you know that we give them space to go away and come back next week and go you know what I did none of what we spoke about last week yeah. and that's okay yeah you know, that, that we take that expectation of burden and that away from them and say, you know, this is what collaboratively we've identified with. You go away and you just do what you feel able to. If you do nothing, come back, we'll work with that. If you do everything, we'll have a look at what's working and what made that happen and anything in between is fine. So, you know, have, have the space to go and explore it and I'm not overly in touch with what you bring back next week. The reason I love that so much is because I think when we attach our sense of success, a quote-unquote success, to a particular outcome or to a particular behavioural change, then I think it's quite tenuous, isn't it, really, because humans are unpredictable and it can take, as you say, it can take a long time to, to take a leap. And it might not even be a leap. It might be a little creep. Creep, 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 you know. It might not be this massive leap. And, um, you know, to... To be able to, as you say, kind of hold that space um, open and um, they're open enough so that when people are ready, they're able to more fully engage in um, something that they find personally meaningful, I think is a massive gift. So your point of being not attached is just, I mean, that's that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So the other thing I wanted to um, ask you about is I know that we are both speaking at uh, 
no, EDRD Pro, hosted by Sumner Brooks coming up. And it's really, we were just both chatting about it before. We're so excited and we think Sumner's so clever and it's going to be such a huge benefit for everybody. And, um, you know, not only in the eating disorder um, professional community, but other dietitians as well to, to understand a little bit more about what we do. And in every single session, I would say you'll learn something. And I'm not sure about you, Shane, but I'm just, I'm fanning all over the place about the other people that we yes. are presenting with. No, it's, it's, it's such a great initiative and like myself, I, I can't wait, you know, to, to hear some of the insights of the, of the speakers and to have access to such an array of speakers from your lounge room, you know, from your office, wherever you are. Um, yeah, fantastic, fantastic initiative. So my, um, my presentation is really going to be on exercise and eating disorders and I guess where it stems from is, you know, the majority of my work is probably about 80%, 85% with anorexia. And one of the most common questions I get is, when can I start exercising? And, and I find it a really interesting dynamic. Um, there's not a great deal in the literature. And I think when, when I approach it, I, I try and approach it from a, let's have a look at where things are for you in, in, in terms of the context of the exercise. You know, why are you choosing to play touch football? Why are you choosing to go back to triathlon? Why are you choosing to do these things? What intensity do you want to do? One of the things I really look at is how is the person's relationship with food prior to transitioning across to, to starting exercise because exercise, as you'll know, just is another domain for the eating disorder mind to manipulate. And so I often think if we can get people to um, – demonstrate or have some success in managing that eating disorder thought around food, then we can provide them with some confidence in managing those eating disorder thoughts from an exercise point of view. So we'll, we'll be having a look at um, some clinical experience. We'll be looking at some of the research. We'll be looking at how um, exercise and amenorrhea relate in terms of treatment of mm -hmm. bone density, that sort of thing. There's been some, a number of studies done in that area which are, which are interesting. Um, and, and then we'll have a look at how, how we can support sustainable activity with a view to enjoyment, you know, and encouraging people to think maybe from a different perspective from where they were when they developed their eating disorder or throughout their eating disorder and try and bring all of that together so that when we get that question, because I guess as dietitians, we're interested in food, we're interested in health, we're interested in people you know, doing activity that they that they enjoy. And so if we can support them to explore that outside of the context of their eating disorder and wellness, then I think we give them a, you know, a good opportunity to sustain the progress that they make during the course of treatment. Yeah, definitely. And I'm so glad I asked you this question about what you were talking about because I, I knew the topic, but um, so what you and I are going to discuss is going to be so beautifully connected. Um, I'll be talking about um, athletes. So not only elite athletes, but anybody who, who regards themselves as an athlete, I guess, <laughs> whatever that means to yes. you. So that'll be really nice because um, um, I'll talk a little bit about uh, a little bit about setting up prevention and early intervention programs and a little bit about the role of the dietitian, not so much in, in, in treatment, but then how we can be aware of uh, not colluding. Yes. You know, with, um, uh, with, you know, if a coach 
says to you, I want you to help this athlete, uh, maybe, you know, reduce their skin folds or, or lose weight or da 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 how we can not collude in increasing risk for disordered eating practices or, or clinical eating disorders and how we can be clear and courageous when we're working with people at risk. Um, and, yeah, I'll be talking a little bit about, you know, how do we know who's at risk and so that'll be very exciting. Yeah, and, and as you say, I think there's quite a bit of overlap there and it'd be good and the um, – Having a look at some of the other speakers' topics, there's yeah. going to be a lot of synergy there, isn't there, among totally. lots of different presentations. And I think that the, the program's been so well put together that there's going to be so, so many rich learnings from it all, which would be fantastic. Mm. Yeah. yeah, good fun. Absolutely. It would be amazing, actually, if we could all – I mean, there's so many benefits, obviously, for online learning. But can you imagine if we were all 15 of us and everybody who's listening, we could all be in – I don't know, Cancun or yes. I don't know, Thailand or somewhere really cool like that. Now that would be, that would be awesome. That would be amazing. But um, we're, yeah, we're not, in, we're, we're dreaming of Cancun or Thailand, but we're, yes, we're very uh, fortunate to be in Noosa. That's yes. right. Yeah. Well, if you can't be in Cancun, Noosa's second best, Noosa's right? Noosa's second best. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, and actually Shane and I have now got a, a hot date with about 50 other of our colleagues uh, for our for our academy uh, cocktail party. So on that note, um, we will bid, bid you farewell and um, I just want to say a massive thanks to Shane. He's, he's um, you know, he and I have kind of come through our, our career together really. In, in lots yeah, of, that's right, in, yeah. In lots of parallel ways. And so it's been a – and Shane for me has always been somebody who's just been around. You know, you've always just been around, a great person to ask, tricky questions to, and somebody who's got always got wise counsel, that's for sure, always calm and considered. That's the – that, you know, when I get upset about stuff, you've got the calm and considered <laughs> approach. <laughs> so we're very, very lucky to have Shane, Shane – um, uh, with us in Australia and and just about to share him with the world too which is great so we'll go and enjoy a few a few drinks uh, with our colleagues and uh, we'll see you in the next episode <laughs>